we'll get together that we're going through here now. Would you would you all stand please? This has been a fine working committee and it's gone off real smooth. Now Joe, I'm gonna disappoint you. This uh man that I'm gonna call on now I guess perhaps uh, what I could say uh you all know what a farmer is? F-A-R-M-E-R. That's a man outstanding in his field. This next man is outstanding in his field. Joe L. Thank you. Bill, I'm wondering <clears throat> how anonymous we can get. I stepped off of the elevator when I came in this place to register with the drunks, and I see a big sign that read, uh, Texas Certified Seed Growers Association Annual Meeting. Uh, I don't see anybody in this august audience that looks very much like seed growers tonight. Uh, years ago, when it was the custom of the reformers and the evangelists to go about the country preaching against the demon rum. It was a custom, if they were fortunate enough to find one, to take some poor derelict along who was in a sickened state and set him on the platform. And as they waxed eloquent about the evils of demon rum, they would point at this poor derelict and he would tick and blubber. And it was quite an impressionable thing to those who watched. Tonight I have the enviable position of having five such blubbering idiots up here. <laughs> So if I should say anything profound, you'll tick and blubber a little, won't you? <laughs> I don't know. I've heard so much since I come here to Houston in this conference about alcoholism and how it affects us, and we practically dissected the alcoholic. We've practically torn him to shreds, literally. But I'm thinking of a particular phase of our drinking, if you'll go along with me on it. And that's when we said to ourselves, I'm going to drink to a beautiful point and stop. Any of you ever said that to yourself? 
We're going to hit this happy medium. I never could do it. I always got up to it quickly and then over the top. But once. Years ago, I drank in a little saloon in Sacramento, and there was a little group of us uh, intellectuals who hung out there. And in this group, I'll mention their professions. We had an INS correspondent and a newscaster. We were across the street from the state capitol. Had a little drunken watchmaker. How he ever did it, I don't know. Then there were two girls in this group, and strictly a platonic thing. We were all one happy group. One of them was living with a Park and Tilford salesman. <laughs> and when he went to work, she would bring his samples down to us. <laughs> the other gal in this group that drank with us, we were a close-knit group, <laughs> was a fortune teller of the old type. She had this voluminous uh, clothing. She wore a turban. And she was cross-eyed. <laughs> but she was a very proficient shoplifter. And we found her handy to the group. She loved Jan with a passion. And we found that her little hole in the wall, the little purple curtains, the crystal ball on the green top table was a nice, quiet place to drink. So we would retire there on many occasions. One morning I had, by brute force and awkwardness, promoted a jug of gin and was on my way to my room with it to sit and meditate. And I made the error of stopping in this bar to get a double shot to start before I worked on my gin. And I sat down and engaged the bartender in some very intellectual conversation. And I felt this rustle to the side of me. I didn't pay much attention to it because I was too engaged in putting this bartender on for a drink. But as soon as I had downed it, I noticed that my jug was gone. And I immediately knew what had happened, so I jumped up and ran out the back door across the flowing traffic into the little fortune-telling place, and here sits the fortune-teller laughing and drinking my gin. And that was the only time that I ever struck a happy medium. I guess it affects all of us the same way. We seem to have the 
same symptoms once we have been attracted by the magic of alcohol. Our desire is to drink till we hit the happy medium. But we can't ever do it. This addiction of ours is so fixed that once we take one, we go over the top. I say this in all seriousness this very day, less than three hours ago, I talked to a gal out in the edge of town here about her husband, and she had built up within herself the most beautiful defense mechanism I've ever seen. But during the course of our conversation, she made this remark, I believe that my husband's case is different. Well, you know, that's what I thought mine was. When I came to AA in the condition that I was in, I knew that when I got with these people, whoever they might be, and told them of the dirty deal that the world had dealt me, that they would throw their mouths open in amazement. And, you know, I didn't make much hit with them. I started drinking uh, early, 17, if that's early, and there was really no good reason for it. Not much of a reason by logic. I drank one night with a group of young fellows to be accepted in the crowd. I thought that if I didn't, they'd call me a sissy or something. So I took a drink. And it did something to me that it didn't do to those other fellows. I was so constituted, I guess, that it uh, offered a great escape to me. It performed a great magic. And I got drunk that night. Incidentally, I got drunk the last time I drank, too. <laughs> But now you know those other fellows who drank with me that night went on about their business, and some of them I know today, who are in the realm, I suppose, we hear so much about social drinkers. Maybe they're just social drinkers. I've never met any, but there may be some. I have a very humble opinion about social drinking, and that is that if you take the most pious and unctuous old sister out of the church and slap about eight slugs of that gallo in her that I used to drink, she's going to become unsocial as hell. <laughs> <clears throat> Be that as it may, uh, I went back to it again and again. I began to use it. It did, in those days, everything that I needed for it to do. If I felt bad, it improved my feelings. If I was sick, it made me well. Uh, incidentally, uh, you shouldn't make too much fun of wine, really, because it has some great uh, medicinal uh, purposes. Wine is an absolute cure for hay fever. 
If you drink it like I did, you don't dare sneeze. <laughs> they say that it's a great appetizer. It uh, whetted my appetite for more wine. But uh, I don't know where nor when I became compulsed to drink. I really don't. The whole procedure is quite nebulous. I was in, actually started, I was in Hollywood in the lingerie business of all things. And, well, there wasn't in the movies, so no. I made one screen test while I was in Hollywood. Uh, I ran through a window with an irate husband chasing me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> here I am, a young fellow in a skilled profession. I was studying under one of the more eminent designers in ladies' lingerie. He had taken to me and spent a world of money on my so-called education and had tried to teach me everything that he knew. And from all logical reasoning, here was a young man going places. And I think it was here that I crossed from the uh, social, as we hear it described, to pathological drinking. Now, those are some very high-sounding and fancy words. I like to think that I quit living to drink and started drinking to live. There is a close coordination there. But it was here that uh, my calendar started leaking. I would lose a day. My weekends became longer and longer and longer. And I get the biggest bang out of a new guy coming dragging into AA and says to me, if I don't quit drinking, I'm going to lose my job. Well, you ought to quit it. <laughs> if... Uh, your job interferes with your drinking, leave it quickly. <laughs> We've got to step in AA a little bit tough for some of these characters to chew on when they come in. It refers to your status of mentality. I believe it's the second step where it says that... Uh, you got a gopher in the garden up here. And some of these guys don't like to talk about it too much. I did a lot of this, but nothing wrong with me up here. Now, let me tell you something. If you cut a bunch of bazeers with three of them places in them, you're nuts. <laughs> I told uh, 
I told the psychiatrist about that later, and he said it was just wishful thinking. <laughs> well, began to hurt me. There's something in our book of experience about where the use of alcohol affects our lives. What are you when you're an alcoholic? I don't know. It says when alcohol begins to affect your life. When you become powerless over alcohol. And I think it's along in here that I became powerless over alcohol. This fellow who thought so much of me who had invested so much in my education, came to me and said some of the most horrible words I've ever heard. He said, Joe, you can't drink. Well, now you know what that would do to one of us. And I proceeded to prove to him that I could. And later he came to me and said, as badly as I hate it, you're going to have to go. He was a Jewish fellow and one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. He was a non-alcoholic. He could drink. We would go places together, and I would come home like this, and he always came to work fresh in the morning. And I hated his guts. <laughs> Drank just as much as I did, go out with me, and here he comes to work in the morning, fresh as a daisy, and I've got the brown whimpers <laughs> and the flapping woo-hoos, and I've had a couple of hot beers on the bus coming to work. <laughs> and he tells me I can't drink. <laughs> and he says, you've got to get out of here. You're costing me too much money. And he further added, he said, there's one thing I'm glad of, and that is you weren't a rabbi or you'd have destroyed our whole race. <laughs> they, they used to call me that drunk man with the scissors. Now, it's comparatively easy to make a bad reputation or a good one as far as that in a medium-sized town. But when they've heard of you before you get there in a city as big as Los Angeles, you stink. <laughs> so this was my first job. Here I was. And I say that an alcoholic and his constitution is built up in a series of dishonesty. It's necessary. A drunk has automatically got to be a liar, or he'll never get his second job. You don't dare tell him about the first one. <laughs> the war was going on at that time, and I went down to San Pedro and bought a plumber's license out the back door of the union hall. I paid for it. 
uh, gave them some good money. It wasn't sort of an ethical thing to do, but it was quite prevalent in those days. And I went into the shipyard as a master plumber. This is the guy that had never picked up anything any heavier than a pair of scissors. And I was a master fraud, I'm sure. Those were the days, if you remember it with horror, that you were frozen to your job. Any of you ever remember that, huh? Well, I thawed out. I got a little piece of paper at home, a little pink form, signed by the Department of War Labor of the United States, and it prohibits me from working within 25 miles of the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> How lucky can you get? Then I began to tell Mary, ain't much use in me looking for a job, is there? I'd have to commute too far. Uh, when I see a guy coming to AA, still holding the hand of that old gal that stayed with him and made excuses for him, it's the greatest thing to my heart ever. Alcoholism is a family disease. Alcoholism is a contagious disease. Alcoholism is a fatal disease. Yesterday morning we buried one of our girls up in Tyler. who was a result of about the third sentence in the fifth chapter of our book of AA, wherein it says, there are some of us who cannot or will not give ourselves to this simple program. Oh, she's a statistic, a thwarted one, of course. The paper said she died suddenly. Nothing more. Well, this is a heinous thing for one like me to be complicated in, isn't it? There's no reason for this. I came from a good family. I had religious environment. What was the reason? That's the question that I sat in the bar and asked myself for many years. Why do these things have to happen to such a charming fellow like me? Second job gone. Well, it seems to me that when a man is compulsed to drink, that the error always points down. Once in a while you'll meet a drunk who says, I'm doing better with it. He is. But I've never met anybody whose drinking improved. So neither did mine. My selection of things to do were 
kind of getting scarce. Pickings weren't so easy. And I wandered up into Northern California and secured a job on the railroad. And I would like to say here that they are the most narrow-minded group of people <laughs> I've ever met. They have taken us into consideration. They have a rule about drinking. It says uh, if you are even seen coming out of a place that dispenses with alcoholic beverages, you can be fired. Well, I never came out very often. <laughs> if I did then, it was under duress and coercion. But this set in a siege of the most hellish existence that I could ever think of. And this began the old procedure that every drunk starts on and ends up with. We started making excuses one for another. One for another. I remember one of the neighbor's ladies had the audacity to ask my wife one day, said, why do you live with a man like that? And with her loving reflex, she said, oh, you don't know him when he's sober. And this damned old woman said, well, when is he sober? <laughs> Making excuses. I can understand the uh, railroad attitude, kind of. Some of you fellows will understand this vernacular. They run more than one train on one track. Uh, it's a, a good thing you don't have to guide a train. If you did, uh, there would be disaster all over the country, I'm sure of that. But... Uh, they're afraid that if a man is kind of addled, I suppose, that uh, he might mix them up. And that's just exactly what I did. <laughs> this uh, was a mountainous territory over the Sierras from Sacramento to Reno. You go up 7,000 feet in just a short time, and uh, you push a train up there with a whole lot of engines. And when you get up to the top of it, you cut off these uh, superfluous engines. That's a good word. Uh, we call them helpers on the railroad, any of you guys. And uh, you get into a thing that is called uh, an interlocking system, and the railroad boasted that it was electronically perfect, that it was physically impossible to make a mistake up there. And I did. <laughs> By some method unknown even to me, I got two engines going towards one another with four cars between them, carrots, apples, lettuce, and celery, and I made the biggest goddamn fruit salad in history. <laughs> This unsolvable enigma 
tore up the reputation of the railroad. They were concerned about this uh, perfect system. And they flew two fellows out from the Sperry Company in the east to find out how this phenomenon had occurred. And they followed me around for two weeks <laughs> trying to find out. And I didn't know. And I finally told one of them, if you'll buy me a jug, we'll try it again. <laughs> Ah, uh, let's laugh about it. Let's laugh about it. Because forever laugh has been a dozen tears for the drunk. You can't uh, call him anything that he hasn't called himself. In the lonely hours of the night, a drunk has got four companions, none of them are friendly, and that's the walls. It's all he's got. And things here begin to go into a landslide. Alcoholism, as it has been described to me by those who are more erudite, is a threefold thing, mental, physical, and, of course, spiritual. Well, I never did much spiritual drinking. Most of my drinking was the physical act of taking an ounce of alcohol and putting it to my lips and taking it like that. I never drank spiritually. Once in a while, I hear one of the old deacons get up and tell about it, but I never did do any spiritual drinking. Mine was a physical compulsion that was coupled with my mental allergy that took me to a state where I could not stand myself sober. And I had to drink myself to a state that one of my dear friends, Tom Lovern, tells about, to a state of complete self-disgust before I was willing to look at myself. Oh, the physical end of it set the trap for me, I guess. I'd gotten on wine quite by accident. I'd seen winos, stumbled over them, going from my hotel to work, and had actually looked at them in a rather objective manner. Poor guy. I suppose if I had any compassion for the guy laying there, it was the fact that he didn't uh, have the money to buy another drink. But one morning I got to a state that I couldn't drink booze anymore. It's a hellish fix. To want it, to need it, to have to have it, and can't take it. And I had befriended a little Irish bartender in the lobby of my hotel one morning. He was a little fellow. He had an Irish name. You can't get any more Irish than this. James J. O'Farrell. Little curly-headed, witty fellow. I hope he's found AA now. And I caught him in the lobby of my hotel, and he had the shakes 
literally and simply. And this particular morning, I was had had my quota, and I felt benevolent. And I put my arm on his shoulder, and I said, What's the matter, friend? You seem to be in trouble. And he was very forthright and honest about it. He said, I have got the shape. I'm going to get thrown out of the hotel. I said, well, I can't fix the hotel, but maybe I can do something about the shakes. Here's a $5 bill. Go get well. And that was one of the best investments I ever made in my life. I followed that little Irish bartender for four years and drank over $5,000 worth of whiskey off of that $5 loan. And if he didn't remember it, I reminded him of it. <laughs> How phony can you get? Come on, Curly, you remembered me. I helped you out when you were in trouble. And bless his heart, he would always go. Well, this particular morning, I went into his place of business at 6 o'clock. Only he and I were there, and he was swamping out, and I told him, I literally, I said, Curly, I can't take my breakfast this morning. He knew what I meant. And like a great uh, physician, he pointed over back of the bar, and he said, go over and take a couple of drinks of that port wine, and then you can go back to whiskey. And I would like to say here to you, my friends, I have never been back to whiskey. <laughs> I like what that stuff does to you. It's, uh, oh, it's a minor atomic thing there that it does. And I didn't want to be a wino. And I had heard the word wino. Never heard the word alcoholic in those days. But I'd sure heard the word wino, and I didn't want to be one up. There was still this uh, remnant of pride, I suppose. And to keep from being one, I bought me a beautiful wicker bottle. And I would pour this cheap 35-cent wine into the wicker bottle and sip it out of it. It looked better. Well, you don't, when you see a guy under the bridge, he hasn't been there forever, nor will he stay forever. When we get in that plight, the pace seems to get more rapid. The human body can only take uh, so much of that. There's a limit to it, and there was to mine. I began to see the little man, the visions, and as the Bible so eloquently puts it, I started talking in an unknown tongue.
And I had an awful siege of DTs in the, one of the local hotels in Sacramento, and, and I don't know how long it lasted. Who does know how long anything like that lasts? Do any of you know how many minutes uh, you went through those? I don't. To those of you who have experienced it, you understand properly. To those of you who haven't, don't bother. But I got up and staggered out of that hotel by brute force and awkwardness and went home to my wife and uh, cried out to her these words, I'm sick. I never had been sick in my life, really, except this earthen sick that you get in the morning. And as far as I knew, everybody threw up every morning. I thought it was a way of life. I used to rent a hotel room with twin beds in it, one to sleep in, one to throw up in. But you know, I think my wife realized she's been subjected to many years of abuse, many years of making excuses, but I think she realized that something hellish had happened. I think she realized it. And we tried to get a doctor. We didn't have any family doctor. We didn't want to call a railroad doctor because that rule I was telling you about a while ago. But we were forced to, and we called this character down there. And here I lay with all the symptoms, and he asked my wife, does he drink? Uh-uh, she said. <laughs> Is there any limit to their desire to cover us up? Well, I don't think he was quite fooled. He was a forthright and unprocrastinating little clown. And he gave me a pop of the happy medicine in the arm and a prescription for some of the most delightful pills that I've ever come in contact with, uh, phenobarbital, I believe they call it. Uh, one grain phenobarbital. Up until that time, I had been shaken out drunks. This was the joy on earth. You could go up with booze and down with hell. Boy, that is an answer. But somewhere in there, the stratosphere starts leaking. <laughs> and then he further added to her, this guy's got to be in a hospital. He's real sick. And they backed an ambulance up to the door, and we go to San Francisco making 90 miles an hour with the red light on, the siren screaming, and I'm up in the back eating those delightful pills. <laughs> And I've always looked back on that trip with a feeling of irony. Here's a guy been drunk 18 years, and they're in a hurry to do something about it. 
That is the non-alcoholic application to us. Get sober now, isn't it? Well, when I got to the hospital, it was a day and a half before I saw a doctor with all the mad rush of going down there. I don't know. I didn't see one of them. I guess they were out uh, testing cigarettes, <laughs> breaking the laxative habit. Or so I didn't... Uh, Science has made some great strides recently, <laughs> none of which have been of much use to the alcoholic. But anyway, uh, finally I saw one of them, and they put me through one of the most stringent clinics west of the Mississippi from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, and I will say here to you that it is not a lot of fun with the shakes. I drank the chalk, walked on my tiptoes, uh, and the result of this uh, was that I had nothing organically wrong with me. And the hospital had to have an answer, and that was my introduction to psychiatry. I would like to make an humble observation to you that the members of Alcoholics Anonymous of my acquaintance who have had their alcoholism beaten out of them through their knees are very few. But they brought in this uh, frustrated piano tuner <laughs> and he would beat and talk. He was just a chiropractor with tired arms. That's all the son of a bitch. Uh, and he asked me some of the most foolish questions, and I gave him some of the most brilliant answers. If he's not a rummy now, it's not my fault. I But we had a wonderful time. We played with blocks. We sorted string. I became adept at finger painting. And do you know that bastard enjoyed every minute of it? Most of you drunks out here have got the message, and I know you're not going to drink anymore, so I'll divulge a little trade secret to you. If you want to get a psychiatrist completely away from you, you let two drunks lay up in bed one night and memorize the same dream to tell him the next morning. <laughs> this, this will 
send them packing. Well, they shipped me back home. Three months I've had of this. They've changed my diagnosis. When I went in there, I was with nervous anxiety. And when I came out, I was an ambulatory schizophrenic. In English, that means they're going, Jesse, with dual wheat. <laughs> but to say the least, I was ambulatory. That was the only accomplishment that I made in the hospital. I was like the old, you know, if a horse stays on his feet, he's all right. When I went in on a stretcher, they got me on my feet. But while in this hospital, this uh, skull jockey had prescribed another delightful little dose that some of our girls in AA are fond of, bromide. He gave me the granddaddy of nervy, the undiluted stuff. It's uh, called sodium bromide elixir, and it has no taste. It looks like seawater. And the marvelous thing about it is that food doesn't disturb it. I can understand now why these Aunt Minnies sit in the back bedroom and suck on that nervy. Oh, you've heard them say Aunt Minnie's nervous. She won't come out today. Hell, she can't. <laughs> Well, uh, he gave me five little shot glasses a day. He said so, he said. Uh, that did it for you. Uh, to calm me down. And with my reasoning, uh, I thought that his five little shot glasses would calm me down just be a lot better. And I got a unsuspecting little intern who would peddle it to me by the jug. Only one thing wrong with it. It'll make you a blubbering idiot. <laughs> we talk in Alcoholics Anonymous about living a day at a time. If you drink bromide, you only live a few minutes. You don't know what happened a while ago, and you're not much concerned with what's going to happen hence. Your eyes will cross, and you may froth at the mouth a little, not too much. But this is bromide. And they came, those were the days, too, when the hospital didn't take an alcoholic as such. If he went into a hospital in those days, he went in under another name. I was in the nervous ward. And our society today has progressed to a point where in most cities and communities, now the alcoholic can be accepted without shame. Thank God for that. I went in under another name. But they shipped me out of this joint. Uh, 
And for a going away present, I like to think, they sent me by the uh, dispensary and gave me a quart bottle of bromide and 125 quarter grains of phenobarbital and headed me in the direction of Sacramento. <laughs> and the trip that I had come down in 90 minutes in the ambulance took me five days to get back. <laughs> now, you know, my wife set great store by this trip to the hospital, and so did I. I had a disease, made good conversation in the bar. You ever see an old drunk if you punch him right quick and then want to get a fast answer out of him? He say, I've been sick. <laughs> I've been sick. Oh, it'll get you a lot of drinks. My wife thought that the treatment had done some good. But I got, uh, as I shall say eloquently, hoist on my own petard. The bartender called her one day, and he said, Mrs. Leith, you think your husband is sick. And when you go to work, he gets up and comes down here. And then he runs home at 11.30 and gets in bed and lets you come home at noon and prepare his meal for him. And then when you go back to work, he gets up and comes down here. And he further added, and we don't want him. <laughs> this was uh, quite a blow to the loving wife. She didn't know what to do. She was, uh, and in her hysteria, uh, she picked up the phone and called this uh, 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 reflex detective uh, down in San Francisco, this psychiatrist down there. Now, I don't know what he told her. She later told me the conversation. But that was when she left. And you know... I can say that without any rancor in my heart whatsoever. I think honestly that you and me will cling to every crutch at hand as long as we need a drink, won't we? And the absence of my wife was only the absence of another crutch. A very handy one, I will say here, a very resourceful one, but still in all, uh, was only the absence of another crutch. And some of my buddies loaded me into a baggage car and put me on a cot. I didn't get the royal treatment this time. Had a little handbag, jug of wine, and sent me back to the hospital in Frisco. And I would like to say here that the hospital was not overjoyed to see my return. This uh, doctor would not come to see me anymore, and they had a white elephant on their hands, I'm sure. They had to take me. And they sent out to the University of Berkeley and brought in a little Freudian fellow who was just over from Vienna. And he looked like one. 
He had thick glasses and a little Van Dyke beard, and he ticked like this. And uh, he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak what he spoke. And we didn't get along too eloquently together. But I remember one question that he got through to me uh, in his language. Do you wet the bed? Uh, that's always bothered me because I know that that's a result of drinking and not a cause of it. Well, we started some more string and we played with some more blocks and we answered questions and we went back to my childhood and, and uh, for another couple of months. And finally, one day, one of the resident physicians on this particular ward came in the morning and beckoned me to come out like this. Well, you know, a drunk with a guilty conscience, and we've all got one. I knew something was wrong. Uh, I'd been going around cheering up some of the patients, and, uh, and they had... Uh, I love this word that the priesthood uses, defrocked. They had defrocked me. They had taken away my clothes and given me a little white thing that didn't cover up what it was supposed to cover up. They did that to keep me from going down the elevator shaft across the street to a wine joint. That was the only way they could ground me. But this character calls me out in the hall in this humiliating state, and in a literal whisper as though he were ashamed of it, he said, we have come to the conclusion that most of your trouble is from drinking. <laughs> All the science and medicine and money by the wayside, and you know, the little Irish bartender in Sacramento could have told him before I went. He further added, you got to get out of here and let some sick people come in. And I had paraded the story over the hospital about my wife leaving me. Uh, I think I phrased it like this. Uh, my wife left me and took everything. <laughs> Hell, she earned it. She said, okay. Right? And he knew I didn't have any place to go, and he said, uh, where are your people? And I told him down in Texas, and he said, uh, I think his eyes lit up. He said, go down there by all means. Now, I'm have come to the conclusion that we, us, me, have a very obnoxious disease and are not welcome on many thresholds in its advanced state. So he gives me the time-worn lecture, take care of yourself and get plenty of rest. And with that, they sent me towards Texas.
And when I got down in Texas, I found a small-town psychiatrist down there who I would name-drop with. And he was a lonely little fellow, and he loved to talk. And I would go and listen to him for an hour, and he would talk. And he would give me goofballs by the popcorn side for him. And I got to resting so well that my own mother had me locked up for safekeeping. Well, uh, this wasn't my first jail, nor was it my last. But there was something particularly humiliating about it. And I'd been there three or four days, and, and there was a guy whom I had never seen before came up to my uh, boudoir there with the vertical Venetian blinds and introduced himself to me. And I got a kick out of what Mary said this afternoon about the guy that looked so clean. This guy was impeccable. This guy stood still. And I guess I subconsciously envied what he showed to me. And he stood there through those cell bars. And let me say here that if you are in jail, you're a captive audience. You don't spin on your heel and walk off. You stay and listen. But this guy gave me what we've come to know, in essence, is the AA pitch. He told me about himself. He said, I've had a world of trouble with my drinking. It came to a point that I couldn't control it, and it very near killed me. And then he threw it at me. He said, and I think maybe you're having a little trouble with yours too, aren't you? And he hurt my feelings. I was so filled with an ungovernable hatred that I couldn't concentrate on anything. I think that a man in jail has one prime idea, and that is to get out of jail. That's his sole thought. Uh, and I didn't give him any satisfaction. Pretty soon, very calmly, he gave me a little piece of literature on the front of which reads, Slaves of Drink Find Peace of Mind a little piece of literature that had been printed up in that part way back, incidentally, by a fellow who has never made the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. By a fellow who has never made the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Who are we to question from which direction good things come? And he put his name and address on the back of it and said very casually, if you ever need us, call us. With that, he went. My people are pretty substantial citizens around there, and they uh, saw that this tri trip didn't do any good. You know, non-alcoholics are funny people. Well, ain't they?
They expected him to go jab the needle in, sweetness and light, go forth and send no more. And when this guy tells them no pitch, they don't know what to do. Yeah, they did know what to do, too. My mother said to this fellow, well, if we let him out, he'll get drunk. And this fellow told her, he said, yes, he will. His condition demands it. Any alcoholic's going to get drunk. So they paid two deputy sheriffs to load me in a police car up in Tyler and bring me to your fair city of Houston and take me out to the Southern Pacific Station out here. And we sat for hours waiting until the night train went west. That was my family's treatment for the disease of alcoholism. No family likes to admit they've got one of us. And my family sure had one. But we hear all the time about these drunks that recover in AA and uh, how they suffered and how they rise above it. This is true. But you know, I don't remember much about the physical suffering of my alcoholism. The things I remember and will stay to me to my grave are the humiliations and the indignities that I brought down upon myself and I never had an answer to say why it was happening to me. Don't tell me that's not suffering. To feel is small, to feel is little, and as our big book of experience puts it, to feel so defenseless against a drink, that's suffering. And I sat in your station out here with these two big burly fuzzies on either side of me. I weighed 119 pounds, no teeth. Incidentally, if you're on a steady diet of wine, you don't need any tea. <laughs> I was sober over six months before I missed them. <laughs> and I went back to Los Angeles. I stopped in San Antonio and filled a bag up with the only thing I know to fill a bag up with. And they carried me off of that train in a wheelchair. Some smart aleck said, uh, we've got to use this car again. You can't live in it. It goes up and down the road. I had kind of set up shop in this car there. And they loaded me in a wheelchair with three dirty old bags that I had tenaciously clung to and carried me through that immense station in Los Angeles and dumped me very unceremoniously out in the front foyer. With all the jocular remarks that I might make, with all the levity, all the fun we have in talking about this disease of ours, I can honestly say to you that in the next five months I went through literal hell. 
I drank as few have, I think, and lived to tell the tale. I mooched wine from my railroad buddies up and down the coast, and I had a permit that would get me goofballs in the railroad hospitals. And it's a pretty sickening procedure. And I ended up in a flop house in Sacramento. And every time I go into one of our AA clubs, See the little sign that's such a necessity there, but for the grace of God. I think of this flop house. There were 18 beds there, and you know, I don't know where those other 17 guys are. Possibly some of them could have been as brilliant as me. Possibly some of those could have been as worthy as me. Why did I have to be the lucky stiff that got to stay sober for one day? Can you answer that? And I got up out of there and started back for Texas looking for the guy that had given me this damn little pamphlet on the front of which read, Slaves have drank fine peace of mind. I never read it. Seems to me, every time I opened one of those bags, it was kind of like the old army shell game. That damn pamphlet was on top. And I didn't have the courage to throw it away. And I could see it in a drunken state at night and in the morning. And I come back looking for the guy that gave it to me. Isn't it peculiar that we drunks have always got to do it the hard way? There's no simple way for us. I came 2,200 miles to find a guy and where I left from across the street upstairs was an AA club. I later found out. And when I got back to Texas, I'm drunk, how else? Nothing had happened. And my people are great believers in this iron treatment for the alcoholic. They think that it will cure many ills. And I am for a jail now and then. I'm a great believer in it. I have an idea that if you're in jail, you can do some of, uh, some of the greatest thinking ever. If you're working on a particular problem and you don't get through with it today, you can work on it tomorrow. <laughs> I'm of the opinion that that's the reason that our old friend St. Paul was so effective. They kept him locked up most of the time. But they didn't. They were getting ready to blow the whistle on me and an old uncle who had never had a drink in his life. This, these people that don't understand us. This was one of them. But he had a tender compassion. And he said to my mother and her sister, no, you can't put him out in a shape like that. And then he said some words to me that I think have been applicable to the treatment of the alcoholic down through the centuries 
until the advent of our society. He said this, Go into the back room and stay out of sight where you won't bother anybody. Hasn't that been the treatment for a drunk? Before the advent of our society. Go into the back room and stay out of sight where you won't bother anybody. And as I lay back there, uh, I heard their friend Jim talk about it. I didn't uh, have any blinding flash nor this, but I literally did the thing that is ultimately necessary for a man to recover. I gave up. It's hard for a person with my spirits and arrogance it's hard for a man of my particular brilliance. It's hard for a man of my eloquence. For a man so gifted as me, the very soul of resource, I said, to say to himself, I have got something wrong with me that I can't handle. I've got to get some help for this. It's a tough job for a guy like me. But there in that room that night with the old dirty sheets, you've seen it many times, rolled up like a pencil, half pint jug apple wine, I think that's where I did it. And I went into this old uncle and told him at three in the morning, I said, I've got to talk to somebody. I'm going nuts. And then I said some words to him. I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. And the kind old fellow didn't argue with me a bit. And he suggested that I go right straight to the guy that had come to see me in jail, which I did. You know, Everything that I had, had contacted during my adult life had usually been a one-shot affair. Nobody ever dealt with me over once. And here was a guy who was willing to deal with me the second time. That's my AA. This guy that was so clean, this fellow who could stand still, and I couldn't. This guy who emanated the very advocacy of peace. This guy who said to me, we have found a way which we can stay sober. And he took me to my first AA meeting. Why are they all upstairs? They drug me up. I'm going to go to one sometime on the ground floor. That's the reason I like to go to Shreveport so much. They've gotten down on the ground. But I was sober a lot of years before I ever didn't have to go upstairs to one of them. But I go that night, and I don't remember a word that was said from the platform. 
I don't remember any of the brilliant or profound remarks that were made there by the deacons that night, but I remember this. I remember experiencing a communication that is indescribable that here are some people like me. Here are some people like me. And the sickening loneliness that plagues every alcoholic that stalks him his ever waking hour seemed to leave me that night, and thank God it has never returned. Oh, I went through all the fits and seizures of a new AA member. Who was it here today said they learned it in a week or a month, was it? I was a pretty sharp character. That night in that group, my first AA meeting, there was a guy sitting over to one side, smoking gently on a cigar, had a big diamond ring on, had one of these AA things we get here. Uh, they call it the serenity, I believe. And I found out that I had soldiered with him 20 years prior to that time, and the last time I had seen him, he was a blubbering idiot. I knew I knew him. I knew I knew him, and he bugged me all during the meeting, and here he sits peacefully puffing on that cigar with a diamond ring and the paunch here. And they had him chained to a post in this army camp. That was the Army's treatment for alcoholism. And we would slip him whiskey to watch him perform. He was a comic. He was a real idiot up and down his post with that chain like a monkey yet. And this is the last time I've seen him. And lo, when I walk into an AA club, here he sits uh, gently puffing, peaceful. And I looked at him. And I thought if it'll help him that much, it'll make a goddamn genius out of me. <laughs> Took me a long time to lose. Took me a long time to lose most of me. I had a lot of losing to do in AA. Then there was another old guy that night. And this is the thing that we all get around to, I guess. This guy was the sheriff who had locked me up 12 years prior to that time. Here he was at night with a couple of pistols on. The very symbol of everything that I hated. And he came up and put his arm around me and he said... I love you, boy, and you can stay sober just like I did. What is this insidious, eating, crawling thing that burns within us that makes us by our very nature excessive, that makes us cry longer and laugh louder, and feel a little bit deeper than the man next to us. This thing that can only be dispelled 
by finding another of the same kind. This love of another drunk. I don't know how to explain happiness in AA. I've heard a lot of descriptions of it or the joy we find in recovery. I've heard a lot of guys say that it's a, a journey, not a destination. There used to be an old fellow in our club years ago who professed to be an air conditioning engineer. He said he was. I guess there is such a thing. And one night we were sitting and talking about air conditioning, which I knew nothing. And the old man wasn't profound, but he said this. He said, there is no such thing as cold. There is only an absence of heat. Well, I don't know. That may be true. They sell a lot of air conditioning equipment on that theory that there's only an absence of heat. And the joy that I have derived in AA, the joy of sobriety that has come to me, has not been anything of great moment. It has been the absence of a lot of things that used to happen to me and now don't. You know, it's peculiar, but I don't have to run anymore. It's funny, but I don't have to feel ashamed anymore. And neither do I have to be humiliated and not have an answer anymore. That's the gift in AA that I have. A little personal injection. Not so long ago there came a fellow into my office, a man whom I know. And usually he comes in very quickly and we do business together and that's it, that's all. But this particular day, uh, he came in and sat down. I have a couple of chairs in front of my desk for victims. And... Uh, he was rather sheepish, and he wouldn't start talking. He had a great brown paper sack in his hand. And uh, he said, Joe, uh, we're uh, tearing down the old jail over here. And uh, I got a little something in this sack I thought maybe you might like to keep. And I said, what is it? Let me see it. That's it. I've heard the music of that stinking thing, and they make a music that is unlike any other anywhere on earth. This is the real Magook. That's to the five floor on the old local jail. I don't have to hear it rattle anymore, the absence of another thing. And the only reason is that somebody was good enough to let me in on this thing. Nothing I did whatsoever. And I can only think of the teaching of the little story 
And this is way out for me because I'm not a scriptural man, but I remember the story of Christ and the woman at the well. This is an age-old thing that all of you have heard, and there's a particular thing in it that I like. It seems to me that he met the woman at the well, and they were from two different entirely social stratas altogether, had no reason for meeting whatsoever. And every time that she taught this woman at the well, he told her a little more about herself. And she said, I believe I have no husband. And he said, oh, yes, you've had five. And he went on, and it was phenomenal to her, the perception with which he described her disease. And this is the thing I think that is missed by everybody. It goes further to state that when she got through talking to him, she ran into the village and these are the words that she said. Come and see the man who has told me all about myself. That's all I got in AA. The guy walked up to that jail cell and gave me a piece of information that entitled me to stay sober. And I do not hold with the theory that a drunk has always got to come get it before we let him have it. The very premise of our society was set out upon the thing that two men sat together, and I remember their words verbatim. One of them, after they had found the joy of sobriety, said to the other, let us go out and find another drunk. And had it not been for the unsolicited visit of a man who was not too busy, I would have been dead. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. We're deeply indebted to you. That was real great. 